Welcome to Hope Awakens. I appreciate you joining me. We're making sense of the moment. And what a moment. What a time in Earth's history. I hope you're doing well. I've spoken to so many people who've lost family and friends in recent times. We want to think that a new day is dawning and soon we'll be past this. Hang on to God. He is going to get you through. I want to greet William in Whitwell, Tennessee, Robin in Indiana, Ruth on Beaver Island, Michigan. Valerie is in Kennewick in the Tri-Cities in Washington. Tammy's in Missouri. Almar is in the Philippines. Alan is in British Columbia, Canada. David's in Kentucky. Lizette's in Denver, Colorado. And Tina is in Auckland, New Zealand. We've got something powerful right ahead. Thanks for being part of Hope Awakens. I'm John Bradshaw. This is Hope Awakens, brought to you by It Is Written. Tonight is a special night. While we are here, Hope Awakens begins in Spanish. Esperanza en Jesus is presented by Pastor Robert Costa of It Is Written's Spanish language ministry, Escrito Estar. If you'd like to check it out, visit esperanzaenjesus.com. Also, Hope Awakens, oh, by the way, tell somebody about it, would you? Tell someone. Hope Awakens is being presented in ASL, that's American Sign Language. And I want to thank our fantastic ASL interpreters, Melissa Jordan and Elisa Barnes. I'll be interested to see how they interpret that. Interpret it straight. You can say the best sign language interpreters in the world. Tomorrow night at 7, feel free to join me and Doug on the It Is Written official Facebook community group. That's at 7 o'clock Eastern tomorrow night. We'll be answering your questions, questions we've not been able to get to here because we have so many. Remember, at hopeawakens.org, you'll find resources. You can watch previous presentations and you can submit questions there, including video questions at the same link. Ask Pastor Bradshaw. With your questions tonight, here is Pastor Douglas Naar. Hey, John, good to be here with Hope Awakens viewers. We've got a lot of good questions again tonight, very wonderful ones. And here's our first one. When did God stop allowing multiple wives in marriage? No, wait, that's the wrong question. The question is, when did God start allowing multiple wives in marriage or multiple spouses? He never did. That's people taking a little liberty and going in a direction God would never want them to go. When Jesus comes in the clouds of glory, does His feet touch planet Earth? Oh, with the second coming, the Bible says that the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, trump of God, and then we go up and meet him in the clouds. So, no, when Jesus comes back at the second coming, his feet do not touch the ground. Third coming, if I can put it that way, end of the millennium, yes. Now, many times when we face challenges, we turn to prayer and ask God to uh, help our situation. I've been told that God sometimes makes up his mind before we even pray. Therefore, if that's the case, why should we even pray? Well, depending on what the thing is, God may even do that. But look, God will do in answer to prayer things that He would not do had we not prayed. So pray. Don't feel like the answer to the prayer is a foregone conclusion. Look at the parables, the importunate widow. It's not teaching us that God is a hard man who grudgingly answers our prayers. It means that when you keep praying and keep praying, God will often do things that He wouldn't have done had you not asked. 
Now, you answered a question last night that a few people were lost, in the uh, were saved in the time of Noah, a few people were saved in the time of Lot, and then you said a, a few people will be saved at the coming of Jesus. I believe that there's, there are many more righteous people than myself. Can you uh, elaborate on that? Yes, I can. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to stop comparing yourself with other people. When the Bible says few are chosen, it doesn't mean three or four. There's eight billion people in the world. Seven billion won't be saved. You know, it's not going to be, I'm going to, what I mean is, it's not that seven billion will be saved, but I'm not trying to tell you it's two, three, four, five, or six either. So there'll be enough saved. There's room on the ark for you. We aren't going to be saved because we're as good as somebody else. We get to heaven because we have faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? That's all you need to know. Don't be worrying about other people. Now, I have a friend who believes that there are two different accounts of the creation version, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What do I tell her? You tell her that in the Bible there is one creation story, two different accounts of the one creation, some different information given in both places. Now, if the Catholic Church changed the Sabbath from Sabbath to Sunday, then, then why do other Christians worship on Sunday? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a, that's a fundamental question. I'll give you the answer, tradition. Because when something is ingrained, and the Roman Catholic Church was the ruling church for a thousand years, maybe more really, when something is deeply ingrained, it's just hard to get out of. And going to church on a day and praying and praising and singing and giving your tithes and offerings, that's a good thing. Uh, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to take our lead from the Bible, from this book, not from what others are doing. Uh, they, day was changed, yes, and people cling to that because of tradition. Nothing more. You choose to follow the Bible. Now, some churches have begun to reconvene, open up for worship. My spouse and I have decided to stay home a little bit longer just to play it safe with this COVID-19. Now, John, is that a lack of faith? No, it's not a lack of faith at all. Well, I don't think it's a lack of faith. You decide. You do what you feel like you need to do. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a virus going around that has killed tens of thousands of people in this country and many more around the world. You don't have to feel like you've got to dive right back into the pool when everybody else is diving in. You pray about it. Talk about it as a family. You do what's right for you. This is a matter of public health and your health. So I'm not advising you other than to say, take your advice from God. Don't be pressured. Do what you think is right for you and your health. Can you explain Romans 14 verse 5 and uh, 6? One person esteems one day above another. Another person esteems all day the same, all day alike. Can you please explain that? I think I can. I was going to turn in this Bible, but you know how sometimes when you're turning pages, they don't turn so fast. You say, oh, maybe, excuse me, maybe. Here we go. In Romans chapter 14. Yeah, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. We're not, what I can tell you is we're not talking about the Sabbath. If we were, Paul would have made that very clear. He's talking about fasting days, most likely, um, and how some want to place a great weight and great emphasis on those days, and some do not. So it isn't about the commandments of God. Paul isn't going to say, hey, choose for yourself about the commandments of God. Now, in the book of Genesis, it says that every plant-bearing seed is good for our enjoyment. 
Now, John, does that mean that cannabis and marijuana is okay? <laughs> Question might have even come from the state of Colorado, did it? <laughs> you know, if you follow that reasoning, you could go in some pretty interesting places. You're not going to say, well, if, if, if it's all for our good, I should lay down in a bed of poison ivy. If something is harmful, then it doesn't mean we ought to... By the way, by the way, the plant itself might be just lovely. There's nothing that says you need to dry its leaves, roll them up, and smoke them. So um, if you're looking for biblical license to get high and you're saying it was all created for our good, I think you're stretching it a little too far, and I think you know it. Now, if the ceremonial laws were nailed to the cross, then why is it a sin to eat pork and unclean foods? Well, because the issue about unclean food is not part of the ceremonial law. The ceremonies, the, the types, the shadows, the offerings, the feast days pointed to Jesus. In fact, if you look in Leviticus 11, it says these are the laws of beasts, names it specifically. So these were health principles designed to keep you out of the intensive care unit, out of the doctor's office. You follow those, you honor God with your mind, with your body, you'll enjoy better health. They were not ceremonial. There's a very big difference. Help me understand what would be ceremonial about a panda or a catfish or a mollusk. Right. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says that uh, all must appear before the judgment seat of God. Does that mean everyone must appear? It sure does. The lost, sure. The saved, sure. Everyone will be judged. The judgment is going on now. Don't worry about that. This is merely an audit. God is looking at the decisions you've made with your life, and He will honor those decisions. If your life chose for God, God recognizes that. If in your life you chose away from God and said, I want to get on without God, God will recognize that as well. Just choose Jesus. Judgment is nothing to fear because you have an advocate in the judgment. His name is Jesus, your Savior, your high priest, your friend, and in the judgment, He's for you. Very good. Now, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, the word earth is interpreted as meaning a place where there's a lot of people. Uh, this has been understood as uh, referring to the United States of America. Now, how do we justify that interpretation biblically when the United States of America had millions of Native Americans living here before the pilgrims arrived here? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's why when I speak about that, I say comparatively few. I don't know how many millions. I, I really don't. But there was certainly a good number of them. But North America was not populated like Europe was with its teeming multitudes. That's the difference. Comparatively few, and we can certainly all agree on that. The North America was a wilderness. That's, that's, yeah, basically correct. Now, John, when we get to heaven, will our family members recognize us? The reason I believe the answer is yes is because when Jesus came back after his resurrection, a crucifixion and resurrection, they recognized him. Nobody said, who is this man? When Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, no, now the disciples had never met them, but it wasn't any kind of a guessing game. I think they probably figured out who that was by the process of elimination. But there's nothing to suggest they look any different to, they, to when they looked when they went up. So yeah, I'm pretty certain you're going to recognize people in heaven 
given that they recognize Jesus, no trouble at yeah, all. Yeah. Can you please explain Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16? Colossians me, 2 and verse 16. Oh, look at that, right to the page. Uh, so let no one judge you in, yeah, this is in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. We are talking about ceremonial Sabbaths. Those are the Sabbaths that are a shadow of things to come, meat and drink offerings and so forth. The Bible is saying, don't let anybody judge you about that. And you know why Paul said that? Because these people weren't following those things. They weren't keeping the feast days. They weren't offering animal sacrifices. They weren't keeping ceremonial Sabbaths. And Paul is saying, don't let anybody give you a hard time about that. Don't do it. You don't need to do it. And that settles it. He was eliminating a controversy. You know, back in the early church, a major problem is, and you read this in many of the books of the New Testament, was Jewish believers wanted to make Gentile believers act like Jewish believers. And so they wanted them to circumcise their sons and they wanted to have them recognize the feast days and so forth. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. Now, John, can a person ultimately lose their salvation? Yes, of course. If you, if you choose to walk away from Jesus and ignore him and say, I'm not coming back, the prodigal son was saved because he came home, you know. If he just said, ah, I think I'll stay out here in crazy land and act like a crazy man, there wouldn't have been any fatted calf killed in the man's honor. So certainly don't do it. Don't try this at home. But if you choose to walk away from God, God's not going to drag you kicking and screaming against your will to heaven. Now, John, here's our last question for tonight. Where and how did Cain get his wife? Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's not a really a delicate way to say this. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, and others. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that Cain married his sister. Now, today we're appalled by that. Uh, but, you know, there was probably a great age span between them then. We did not have the uh, genetic issues then that we have now. It's not... Well, I, I'd like to think that they didn't grow up, you know, in adjoining bedrooms with him pulling her pigtails and so forth. Maybe in a woman that he didn't know too well because of an age difference. I don't know. But there's no other option. It was okay then. God forbade the practice later. Necessity is the mother of invention, it seems. And that's why that happened. Yeah, well, there's a question. Thank you, Doug. Good question. Really appreciate it. Remember, Doug and I are going to be doing this tomorrow night on the It Is Written official Facebook community group, and we'd love you to join us. I've got a special guest tonight. His name is Pastor Andreas Beckai. He's the lead pastor of the Walla Walla University Church in wonderful Walla Walla, Eastern Washington. Pastor Andreas, welcome to Hope Awakens. It's good to be with you, John. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. I'm anxious to talk to you because you pastor in a university setting. So lots of young people, lots of millennials. I believe I got that right. You'll nod if I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Millennials. I got my term right. So, so we're living in crazy times right now. I think we're, you know, we're, we're turning the corner here. But speak mm -hmm. to me about how this has impacted young people and how you have encouraged young people, particularly young adults. Yeah, um, it's been difficult um, for a lot of the young people here, the students, I think particularly about the graduating seniors of this year who are going through profound feelings of loss because an important rite of passage, graduation, has been really taken from them. 
and now it's going to be virtual or it's going to be in some other format than having uncles and aunts and 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 grandma and pictures and all of that. So they are really struggling. And then, for example, there are students also thinking about the summer with internships canceled. In fact, John, there is a website that has been set up by some young people called uh, www.ismyinternshipcancelled.com just so that people can go online and see if their internships are being canceled. And what I've been telling the students, especially those like that, who just feel so upset that life has just been um, reordered in ways they couldn't imagine, is to say it's appropriate at this time to stop and to lament. Now, when I say lament, lament is a prayer which is searching for answers, for understanding, for peace in the midst of suffering or disheartening circumstances. And the Old Testament talks about it. Let me share really quickly with you um, a short snippet of a lament from Psalm 44. Uh, when the psalmist says, awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Don't hide your face from us. Don't forget our misery and oppression. We are brought to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. I tell students, lament. During this difficult time, it's okay to just be sad because the Bible gives us permission to be sad. It's kind of tough, isn't it, to be treading water, to not to not have any real certainty about the future, like when do things get back to normal? And will we even return for the next school year? I'm sure those things are being yeah. ironed out, but that was a big, that was a big question. How, how, do you, how do you counsel people, any, any person, but particularly a young adult context, to deal with yeah. that kind of uncertainty? You know, um, I think often about another Psalm, Psalm 23, where we are told of Jesus, uh, of God being a good shepherd who is with us. And there is a passage um, in that Psalm where it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. And so I told the students that even if you're going through the valley, God promises his presence in the midst of your pain. And so it may be difficult. It may be anxious um, times for you, but when you are in the valley and, and you know this, John, if you go hiking, when you're in the valley, you don't see the mountaintop. You don't see the inspiration. There's tree covers. And so you don't know when you're going to break through the tree covers and, and, and feel happy and see the view. But God tells us in the valley, he is present with us. And so I told these students, God has promised to be with you in your presence. And the second thing I say is God doesn't waste your pain. And so if you're going through difficult times, know that God is using it as a mechanism of maturation, because it's not just inspiration that grows us. It's also having to go through difficult times that matures us into the image of Jesus Christ so that we can be like what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew, 20, in Matthew 22, uh, 37 to 38, when he says we ought to love God with all of our might and our heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So I told the students, you're in the valley, God is with you, and he can mature you so that you can be more of a disciple and an apprentice of Jesus through this. So you're doing the ministering, but let me ask the minister, let me ask the lead pastor. So, yeah. so you, you, I mean, you're going through this as well. You, you and your family, you're, you're going through this, this churning process. How's it working out for you and, and how have you gained sort of strength and perspective yourself? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, we had a double 
um, event happened. We moved actually about a month ago in the middle of all of this. And you know how stressful moving can be. Oh, yeah. But one of the things which happened in our move was as a family, we had to slow down and we had to all get on the same page. And it's easy um, outside of these circumstances for me to run to work, for my daughter to be at school, for my wife to be at work. But now we're all in the same house. And so we have learned to be gracious with each other, to communicate more clearly, to over-communicate what's going on. And so it's actually been a good time for our family to learn how to talk to each other, to learn how to communicate better. I've also enjoyed the ability to um, have more time to read good books, to be able to go to my uh, back garden and to sit in the sun and to read the Bible and to, and to listen to a book. And so there have been some um, good things which have come out of this time because we've been able to reclaim some of the time we might have otherwise used in other places for each other and as a family. And I've also called my uh, mother in England and friends around the country a lot more in ways I wouldn't have. And also because of Zoom, although, you know, we're all getting sick and tired of staring at the screen, um, I've had opportunities to um, minister and to be with other people from around the world in ways I might not have um, were it not for this. Fantastic. I really appreciate you taking your time. Pastor Andreas Bekai, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. Much appreciated. Pastor Andreas Bekai, lead pastor of the Walla Walla University Church in Walla Walla, which is in Eastern Washington. Really appreciate that. Hope you're encouraged. Let me pray with you now before we dig into the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we look to you. <clears throat> we have faith in you. We trust in you. Or where, if we're honest and we say we are failing a little there, strengthen us. Come close to us. Bless us now as we go to the Word of God. We want to see Jesus. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, President of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, set out to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon about 60 miles southwest of Baghdad. He intended to build a replica of Nebuchadnezzar's palace right on top of the ruins of the original. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he even had his name stamped on many of the bricks that would be used in the building project. But Saddam was attempting the impossible. The prophet Jeremiah had said around the year 600 BC, for out of the north, a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. 10 verses later, Jeremiah said, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. And that's how it is today. Here's what we know. God's purposes will be carried out. Now his plan was to create a perfect world filled with people ready for eternity. That plan was interrupted. But God implemented the plan of salvation and Jesus came to the world to die for our sins. God was not caught by surprise. The Bible calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The enemy of souls planned to ruin what God had set out to do, but the devil's plans were interrupted. We see this again and again, evidence that God's purposes will be carried out. What God intends will happen on his schedule and it won't happen on our schedule. But His purposes know no haste and no delay. At the Tower of Babel, it seemed that the world had turned away from God and were ignoring His will. Genesis 11 verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city 
and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This was rebellion, pure and simple. How could there ever be a people looking for the Messiah to come to the earth if these plans were carried out? Surely there was no way. Back to Genesis 11. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they will begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. God's intention was that people would fill the earth. But even though they camped around the Tower of Babel with designs on getting to heaven by their own devising, they couldn't frustrate the purposes of God. Multiple examples of this sort of thing. In this great spiritual war in which we are caught, there was an attempt made to prevent Jesus from ever being the Messiah. Israel was very nearly destroyed. They went into captivity in Egypt. And as we know from the famous story, Pharaoh did not want to let them go. When they made an escape after that first Passover, they were pursued down to the Red Sea. Only a miracle got them out of Egypt and saw them on their way to the promised land. In fact, it was a series of miracles. God sent 10 plagues, miracles, every one. He prevented the seven last plagues from afflicting Israel. Miraculous again. Then there was the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and the Red Sea miraculously opening up and then closing again. God's purposes would not be frustrated. In the days of Esther, a decree was issued that all Jews would be destroyed. But by a series of miracles, that decree was turned around. In the end, it was the wicked man Haman who lost his life while Israel was blessed. God's purposes would not be frustrated. Maybe the greatest example of this was regarding the birth of Jesus. After Jesus was born, a jealous King Herod wanted Jesus killed to prevent what Herod thought would be the rising up of a rival king. But an angel warned Joseph in a dream and Jesus and his earthly parents escaped to Egypt. There were attempts made on the life of Jesus. At one time, in the very town in which Jesus had been raised, he was taken up onto a hilltop to a cliff. The intention of the mob was that Jesus would be thrown off the cliff. But somehow, Jesus managed to evade those who wanted to take his life. John 10, 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Verse 39. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. God's purposes would not be frustrated. So look ahead with me. The Bible says that Jesus is going to return. Any reason that wouldn't happen? None at all. Think about this. God purposes that you spend eternity with Him. Is there any reason that should be frustrated? None at all. Down through the years, evolutionists have risen up to pour, to pour scorn on the idea that the world appeared as the result of a special creation process. 
They've denied that it was carried out by the direct intervention of God. And of course, related to that, promoting the idea, there is no God. Atheists and agnostics have increased in number. Christianity and Christians frequently are the butt of jokes and the target of ridicule. Now, I thank God that we live in a country where people have the right to disagree if they want to. And please don't think I'm going after people who don't believe what I believe. I'm simply saying, and I am saying, that none of this has frustrated the purposes of God. In recent years, there have been loud predictions, prediction after prediction, that the church will disappear altogether. But so far, the church is still sticking around. Now, it needs to be pointed out that certain things have been confused along the way. That's important. We've seen during our time together that some very plain teachings of the Bible have been mixed up down through time. And I don't simply mean that you get some people who look at the Bible this way and some people who look at it that way. As long as there are people, there'll be different points of view, and that's okay. But when those disagreements prevent people from really knowing the character of God, and when they turn people out of the path of God, then it becomes a problem. And that's what we see down in the end of time. Now, remember, we have seen the everlasting gospel spoken of in the book of Revelation. We'll look at it right now. And as we begin to, let's remember that the word gospel means good news. And we take it to mean the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. In fact, let's look at this now first. This is Paul giving us one of the clearest biblical definitions of what the gospel is. We start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and, and so on. Now we saw that. Here's the good news. Jesus died for our sins. When sin separated us from the Father, when there was absolutely no way back for the human family, Jesus said, I'll bridge that gap. I'll die and give them credit for my death. I'll live a perfectly righteous life and give them credit for my righteousness. And I'll work in their hearts so that sin doesn't have to govern them, doesn't have to master them. Then we read, Jesus was buried. He really died. They placed his body in a tomb. He died in a human form and was buried in Joseph's new tomb. Bible told us, he died according to the Scriptures. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible said Jesus rose again, demonstrating He has power over the grave, power over death, power over the enemy of souls. And then Paul wrote that He rose again according to the Scriptures. Again, what happened was the fulfillment of Scripture the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel and the world. It was evidence that Jesus indeed was the promised Messiah. He was then seen by Peter and a whole lot of others. Jesus 
died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He was seen. And it was all forecast in the scriptures well ahead of time. There's never been a story told anything like this one. The divine son of God was willing to take your sin upon himself. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sin for us. If you have no sense of the sinfulness of sin, this might not get you atten your attention. But if you'd consider for a moment that Jesus became sin for us, it's clear that we're talking about a God who was prepared to go to any lengths necessary to redeem humanity. And think about this. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Look, it's one thing to die for your friends. Jesus died for His enemies. This is the gospel story. There's no greater story. Someone died for you. Someone took your guilt, took your sin, took your shame so that you can stand before heaven and earth and boldly declare, I've been redeemed. What a story. Come on, what a savior. What do you do with an offer like that? What if a stranger, a perfect stranger, paid off your mortgage, paid off your college loans? You'd hardly know what to do. What if someone donated a kidney so you could live? You'd feel so grateful. Jesus has gone so far beyond. He gave his life. Jesus, who had existed from all eternity, gave his perfect life so you could have eternal life. What do you do with that? Don't you grab it with both hands? Don't you thank him for it and believe it and accept it? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And he did it so he could change your heart and change your mind and change your nature and fill you with hope and love. What a story. And it's all true. So in Revelation, we see the everlasting gospel expressed. The everlasting gospel is the gospel. We just looked at that. Although in the book of Revelation, additional details are supplied talking us through the transformational experience of a life connected to the God of heaven, especially down here in the close of time. Let's look at it, starting in Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out, full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12, 
Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, we've looked at some of this, an angel flying in the midst of heaven, a messenger with a message, a message so important it's depicted as being loud and right up there in the midst of heaven where everyone can see and hear. The message goes to everyone because God wants everyone to be saved. And we're told, fear God, reverence, respect. If you want to think of this as involving a little holy fear, I'm okay with that. But don't for a minute think that God wants those who love and serve Him to be terrified of Him. He does not. Fear God and give glory to Him. Live a life of obedience. Live for the honor and the glory of God. For the hour of His judgment is come. We know we're living in the time of heaven's final judgment. That's going on in heaven right now. When will it end? Only God knows. But knowing it is going on right now reminds us that the sands are rapidly running through the hourglass of time. And worship Him. Ah, yes, but let's go on. And worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Now, you know that that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. And where in the Old Testament? It's a quote from the fourth commandment. So when God says here, worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. It's very clear that God is calling us back to the worship that he gave the world in the beginning. You know that God created a perfect world. His intent is to get this world back to how he originally intended it, how it was supposed to be before sin entered the world. And God's plans will not be frustrated. God said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he reminds us of that here. A call to worship in spirit and in truth. We look at where it warns us against receiving the mark of the beast. And what do we know about that? We've studied the mark of the authority of the first nation in Revelation 13. We know what it is now. God is calling us to lean on him, to trust in him, to allow his will to be done in our lives and not to follow the commandments of a man or a system or a church. God promises us He will fill our lives so much that His will will be done in our lives if we allow it. I'll tell you something about the seventh-day Sabbath. It's a sign of righteousness by faith, a sign of the gospel. Here's why. In fact, I'll share a story with you to make the point. God told Abraham and Sarah they would have a son. That son would be Abraham's heir. But Sarah said, we're just too old. So let's help out God, Abraham. Why don't you and my servant Hagar have a child? Now, I don't know if that was in Hagar's job description when she accepted her job with the Abraham family, but that's how it played out. They had a child, Abraham and Hagar. The child was named Ishmael. Question for you, was that child, even though the firstborn, the child of the promise? No. Was that child a child? Yes, Ishmael was a child. But very evidently, Ishmael was not the child of promise. So then Abraham and Sarah said, okay, let's do things God's way and trust him. And Sarah conceived at 90 or so years of age. And Isaac was born. Was Isaac the child of promise? Well, yes, he was. Both were children, both were boys, but one arrived in faith and one did not. One was born as the result of surrender to God. One was not. Let's put it in another way. 
One child was the result of faith. Lord, we'll do it your way. And one was not. When they said, Lord, we'll take care of this our way. Now, when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and we say, you know what? No, I'll bring you a replacement. I'll bring you Sunday. That's not faith. Even when it's done for seemingly good reasons and with the best of intentions, you can't get a better reason for switching out mothers than one of the prospective mothers being in her 10th decade of life. I can imagine Sarah saying, oh, please, no. But that wasn't God's plan. So someone who says, oh, it might not be what God asked, but we worship God on that day and we sing and we listen to the word of God. That's exactly the same thing as Abraham taking Hagar and saying, it might not be the woman God had in mind, but we ended up with the same result. No, Ishmael represented the works of man and a lack of faith. Humans doing their own thing, bringing God their own ideas, like Cain, bringing the wrong offering way back there at the beginning. He was doing his will, not God's. Did he bring God an offering? Yes, he did. But it wasn't what God had asked for, so it wasn't an act of faith. Faith was Abraham and Sarah saying, let's do what God says. Let's trust God in this. A substitute Sabbath day is humanity saying, we hear God, but we are going to do our own thing. That's works. Faith says we'll give God what he asks for. We'll simply yield to God because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. So let's come back to the message of the second angel. Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, why are we talking about Babylon? Babylon was that ancient kingdom led by Nebuchadnezzar. It was conquered by the Medes and Persians in 539 BC. It's been gone for more than two and a half thousand years, but here it's back, just pops up out of nowhere, halfway through the last book of the Bible. Clearly, we're not talking about a revived, literal Babylonian empire. Ancient Babylon was the mighty kingdom that desolated Israel. And even though Babylon was destroyed, and although the Bible says it won't ever be rebuilt, Babylon features again in the book of Revelation. How do we understand this? Remember, in Revelation, John uses Old Testament imagery to make a lot of his points. When he wrote about Babylon being fallen, his readers would have said, we know what he's talking about. That happened before. Tensions between Babylon and the Medo-Persians came to a head one night as the Babylonian king Belshazzar hosted a party in his palace. Babylon was still ruling, but that was about to change. Stick with me, we're going to read a chunk of Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives and concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, Imagine for a moment what that would have been like. In fact, the Bible says the king was terrified. Now down to verse 18, here's Daniel interpreting this. O king, 
The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished, he executed. Whoever he wished, he kept alive. Whoever he wished, he set up. Whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. They took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and wives and concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see, hear, or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified." The writing was on the wall for King Belshazzar. Here's what it said. It said, Mene, mene, tekel upharsin. And Daniel interpreted this. He said, This is the interpretation of the word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The Bible says that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being 62 or so years old. Babylon had fallen. Why? They took the holy vessels of God to be used in true worship, and they knew that, and they used them for common purposes. They desecrated that which they knew was holy to God in worship. They took what was meant for a holy purpose and willingly used it in an unholy way. We see a clear parallel in Revelation 14 and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. There's a call to worship the creator, to worship Jesus, the active agent at creation. And right there in that call is a call to keep God's seventh day Sabbath holy. In fact, the verse contains a direct quote from the fourth commandment. This call goes to the whole world. Everyone's gonna hear and understand just as Belshazzar knew those cups were holy, all will know the Sabbath is holy. And then the message will be repeated that Babylon has fallen. We find a fascinating contrast in the book of Revelation. Two women, let's look at the first one in Revelation 12. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a garland of 12 stars. In prophecy, a woman symbolically represents a church. Here we see a picture of the Christian church down through the ages, the pure woman in Revelation 12. But then there's a second in Revelation 17. Let's start reading. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. 
On her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. If it's a woman, then this woman represents a church, not like the first woman, pure. This one's the opposite. So why is she called Babylon? Remember at the Tower of Babel, the languages were confused. Modern Babylon represents spiritual confusion. Today, let's be honest. Christianity has a lot of confusion when it comes to the Word of God. Verse 2 said, the world is drunk with the wine of her fornication, her impurity. It's been said that wine can represent doctrine or teaching. And if we found that there's confusion across the religious landscape when it comes to the teachings of the Bible, we know that's true. Do you think that's how God wants it? No. If you think with me, you will realize there are two major teachings, errors, confusing people today. I'm not being critical of people, not in the least. But we know that there's an enemy doing everything he can to lead sincere people away from God's plan. Notice verse 5, which calls this church a mother. If she's a mother, she has children. And here her daughters are represented as women, meaning other churches, daughter churches. Let's talk about those two errors. It's fascinating that a teaching as clear as what the Bible says about death has become so confused. What many people today believe comes not from the Bible, but from Greek dualism. The idea of the philosophers, that the body dies, but the soul lives on forever. It's not found in the Bible. It's just not there. But instead, it was delivered to the philosophers, to the mother church, and other churches who have borrowed their teachings from her. The Bible says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. It's about as clear as anything can be. It was Rome who delivered the teaching of the immortality of the soul to modern Christians, like a mother sharing her ideas with her daughters. And now look at this in Revelation 14. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, look, we've discovered that the mark of the authority of that nation mentioned early in Revelation 13 is Sunday in contradistinction to the Bible Sabbath. God gave us in his word the seventh day as a day of rest. Today, people everywhere have lost sight of that. It's fascinating to me that while we all accept that humans function on a daily circadian rhythm, a 24-hour cycle, it has emerged that humans also function on a circuseptin rhythm a naturally occurring seven-day cycle. According to some scientists, it's programmed right into us, a seven-day cycle. Do you think God knew that? I think He did, considering He did the programming. And so God gave us a seven-day Sabbath as a joy, as a blessing. I don't think anybody has a problem with that. A day off, a day of rest, a day to untangle until we start to think about how it might collide with our traditions. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Not learning, but unlearning. Not taking on new information, but shaking off the old. Not stepping out, but being afraid of what others might think or do or say. Let, let's think about what Jesus would think. A day to leave behind the responsibilities and the work that stresses us. Who doesn't want that? A day to step back from materialism. Who doesn't want that? 
a day for God, a day for family. Who doesn't want that? This is why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for the human family. It's a gift uh, written right here in the heart of God's law. And the historians make it clear. Let me read to you. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. That was written by Carl Keating, a, a Roman Catholic apologist. Let's read on. Reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives. Either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. Cardinal Gibbons said, compromise is impossible. When God says, come out of Babylon, Babylon has fallen. He's talking about leaving behind the teachings and the systems that aren't biblical and don't represent his character and his truth. Burning in hell forever and ever without ending? Why? Why would you believe that if it's not in the word of God? God calls us to follow him with as pure a faith as we can. It's a little bit like the Pharisees having Jesus right in their midst. They see him raise the dead. They see him heal the sick. But they decide to cling to their own ways, even though the truth, capital T, is literally right among them. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Bible says, speaking of earth's last days, that all the world wandered after the beast. Revelation 14, 8, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Revelation 18, 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. God invites all of us to follow him in truth, to surrender to his word, to be led by the Holy Spirit. He says, come out of her. That's an invitation. I know some people say, look, I'll change everyone. You can't do that. God knows it can't be done. Even Jesus had to step out of his system of faith, a system of faith that refused to be changed. We can't reform whole churches that have refused to be reformed. And so God says, come out of her. Now, here's what we know for sure. The fact that some of God's people haven't known doesn't mean they're not God's people. Many people just didn't know that Sunday was the Sabbath. They didn't know. Oh, hold on a minute. Just didn't know Sunday was not the Sabbath. They just didn't know that the dead sleep in the grave. They didn't know their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But God is leading you or trying to lead you. He says, I've got a plan for you. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Don't receive her plagues. Don't receive the mark of the beast. You know, the decision to follow Jesus is the best you'll ever make. As you take steps forward, don't look back. Don't let Satan tempt you to turn back. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, come out. Mrs. Lot, look back. God wants his purposes for you to not be frustrated. One day on Mount Carmel, Elijah the prophet set up an altar and offered a sacrifice the priests of Baal had done the same thing, believing Baal would send fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice. Didn't happen. Elijah offered a sacrifice, prayed to God. Fire came down from God, burned up the offering, burned up the altar. Elijah then called to the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. 
what we hear tonight is just like what Elijah said. If God is God, follow him. If God is God, we accept his word and we worship him in spirit and truth. If he's not God, we go our own way. In Elijah's day, what people had done, they hadn't given up on God altogether. They mixed truth and error together. Sounds like today. It's not that people are bad. It's not that they've thrown their Bible away. It's that truth and error have been mixed up. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I'm known of mine. Then he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And he says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I've got a moment to tell you an amazing story. Amar was just a little boy when a napalm attack in Iraq left him disfigured and alone. Badly burned, believing his entire family had perished. He was alone and desperately needed medical treatment. He was adopted by a British member of parliament, took little Amar back to England. It was a huge story at the time. He was raised in privilege, but began to feel isolated in a culture that wasn't his. Things kind of went downhill, so he went out on his own. One day, a man on a platform at a train station got chatting to a stranger. Turned out the stranger was a journalist. The man said, you should do a story about Amar. So the journalist started pursuing Amar, found him, got to know him. Amar said someone in Iraq was trying to get in touch with him. Turns out his mother had learned Amar was alive. Interrupted a news broadcast, grabbed the microphone, held up a family. Please, if anybody knows where my son is, help me find him. A man watching felt pity, started searching online, looked for months and located Amar. They were put together. The journalist traveled to Iraq, discovered Amar's mother was alive. They did a DNA test. It was her. Amar traveled to Iraq, met with his mother. What a story. He said, my mother. She said, little Amar. You've come back. Do you remember me? I'm the mother who raised you. She'd never forgotten him. She waited the whole time. It's like our loving heavenly father. He's never forgotten you. He's waiting for you. If you've wandered, come back. If you've never accepted Jesus, do so now. If you need to grow in your faith, grow now. God has been waiting for you. Let me pray for you. Our Father in heaven, we take steps to you tonight. Thank you for all you've done to save us. Keep us now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you next time for more on Hope Awakens. Until then, God bless you.